Welcome everyone. Today we're going to be talking about improv tricks to improve your writing process. And I'm delighted to welcome our guest, Bob Culhan. How are you, Bob? I'm well. Thanks so much, Dan. How are you doing today? Doing great, Bob. In the green room, you told me about your phenomenal background at Second City and working with stars that we all know today. Just drop a few names so people get a good idea of who you are. Uh, uh, okay, well, I don't know if this gives me credibility in any way. However, I was coached by Tina Fey and Amy Poehler. I've had the extreme fortune of performing with like Jack McBrayer or Seth Meyers or Jason Sudeikis. And, you know, it's back in the, the mid-90s in Chicago. If you think about who came out of Chicago improv and sketch comedy back then, we were all we were all doing the same dance together. So we had the opportunity to to get up on stage and do a number of sketches. And that, well, it was more improv, 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 improv. So it was just a lot of right place, right time. Wow, that's phenomenal! I can only imagine being there at the golden age of improv comedy in Chicago at Second City. So you've taken those skills and helped business people write their books from those. You've written a book as well. So tell us about that experience of how you used improv to create ideas and turn them into a book with the whole first draft process and self-editing. Give us a few minutes on that, please. Absolutely. So when you think of sketch comedy, for example, it's not a process that somebody just writes a, a sketch in its first draft, you say, hey, I'm done. So rarely does that happen. It takes draft work. And that's the same for writing my book, that Stanford University Press book, Getting to Yes and The Art of Business Improv. It's an iterative process. So the way that we separate it out, linking it to helping people write their um, pitches, proposals, books, is by really exploring that old school thought process of divergent thinking and convergent thinking. Now, divergent thinking and convergent thinking is largely associated with brainstorming. Yet, when you really break it down, especially from an improviser's standpoint, what this is is focused on the ability to intelligently and strategically defer judgment or suspend judgment put judgment off for a little while. And that's that divergent side. So for a lot of people writing a book, for example, we get caught into this idea that it needs to be perfect in its first draft. And so we edit while we create. And that's limiting because now you're really focusing on what's not right about your work in real time, as opposed to what we need to do, which is just get it out of our heads. Just postpone judgment to say, whatever this concept is, this idea, I'm just going to postpone judgment for a block of time, 30 minutes, 45 minutes, 60 minutes. I'm just focusing on getting this out. Don't be perfect. Turn off the spell check to get rid of this idea of proper sentence structure. Just get the major concepts out because that's hard enough on its own. So in divergent thinking, you have this thought process of fail early, fail often. That's what you're just driven at. Just don't worry about being perfect. Just get the ideas out right there. And then you move over to the convergent side. And in convergent thinking, you're focusing on editing, sorting, fine-tuning. You're, you're focusing on separating. So when you really break it down, and this is what we do in business improv, my company, when we teach people, we look at the divergent and convergent uh, with the analogy of panning for gold. When you're panning for gold and link this to writing a book as well, you have one chance to go to a river and collect gold. And gold is your ideas for this chapter, this this paragraph that you're trying to write. Would you rather, and gold in this case is rocks. You're going to the river to get rocks, all right? Would you rather go to the river and pinch it two fingers and a thumb with this opportunity and try to pull out that much and be like, yeah, that was a great use of my time. 
pinching the river in the mud to get gold? Or would you rather stick a pan in there, you know, a giant saucer, and pull out as much as humanly possible? That's the divergent side. What you're trying to do is increase the probability for success on the convergent side. And this is where you edit. This is where you sift, you sort, you get the weeds out, the muck out, the fool's gold out of the way. Because once you have this gold, you still have work to do. You have to refine it. You have to process it. So in this case of writing the book, you toggle back over to the divergent side. You say, okay, what did I actually create on the convergent side? I'm going to edit this out. This doesn't make sense. This is fool's gold. This is weeds. This is just dirt. I don't even know. I need to come out. Here's my nugget of gold right there. That's what I'm looking at. Now let's refine it. So you move back over to the divergent side and you take that one nugget of gold, blow it up, boom. And you're postponing judgment again. Just on this one idea that you're trying to create life around, you know, give legs to so it starts running on its own. And then once you have that blown up on the divergent side, you move back over to the convergent side and start editing it down again. This is too long. This doesn't make sense. In reading this a second time, what I see is that the sentences are wrong. If I rearrange these sentences, it actually creates a bit of a story and it needs some more depth. So you move back over to the divergent side again. So this simple process of taking this old school brainstorming model of divergent thinking and convergent thinking and using it as a strong structure that you could put into place for writing material works really, really well, whether it's a song, a sketch, or a book. Fantastic. I, I love that. And when I talk to my clients about writing, they're always have that uh, perfectionism uh, idea that it has to be perfect the right time. And consequently, they may not write a lot, but I always tell them just get the ideas down. You can always cut it out later. And psychologically, I think when someone finishes a, a first draft or a chapter of a first draft and they think they're done, if you go back and say, well, add another story, then it's like, man, I thought I was done with this. I'd much rather have them add too much material and start to cut out. It's psychologically, I think it's better. You know, this brings up the whole idea, Bob, about the first draft. You know, Anne Lamott, who wrote the famous book Bird by Bird, said first drafts are shitty or shitty first drafts or such like that. Pardon my French. Um, what do you think about first drafts? I think if you do a first draft that you think is perfect, good luck. <laughs> that, yeah, why is that? Because the, drafts are, 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 by the nature of the word draft, it's not final. You know, no one says it's my final draft. It's, it's the final copy. It's the manuscript is done. The text is done. Draft is meant to be worked on again. So it turns into a living document. And frankly, especially as you just said, you'd rather have too much and have to edit down than too little and have to bulk up. If you're not failing in your first draft, I would go back just to the innovation idea of are you really innovating? You know, are, that creation idea, are you really creating something different if you just did it perfectly that first time? So you have to have, again, that postponement of judgment, this ability to say, I'm just going to get it out of my head in the first draft. That's it. I'm not trying to be perfect. If there is a perfection, it's in that I'm not perfect. I will be perfectly imperfect in the first draft and then focus on cleaning it up after there. So I agree with you that that first draft should have shit in it. <laughs> okay. So what would you do to improve a first draft? 
what I would do is really focus on that postponement of judgment. It sounds like it's an easy thing that I'm just I'm just not going to judge. Yet you mentioned it. A lot of what your clients face is this desire to be perfect, and that's because they conflate the idea of creation with a final product. The final product should be representative of what you do. It should represent your brand, and in that case, it should be perfect, right? Or as close to perfection as a final product can be. Because if you're really like an artist, you're like, oh, I could tweak this. I could do something else. You finally get to a point where you're like, it is what it is. I got to move on to the next creation, this next idea. Yet, uh, really, ultimately, it has to come from that place that um, it means something to you, right? It's got to come from your heart. And I'm sorry, my kids just screamed on the backside there. So I, I think I just missed the question. Can you repeat the question one more time? Okay, uh, we're good, actually. Let's move on beyond first drafts. Uh, I, I see in the background there that you have your book, Getting to Yes And, and it just uh, dawned on me that the joke you had there, because one of the best-selling books of all time is a negotiating book called Getting to Yes. And of course, one of the best improv techniques of all time is called Yes And. So I, I congratulate you for thinking of an extremely clever title. In the green room, you were telling me that the book was published by Stanford University Press, so there are no slouches. Tell us about the, the editing process that you went through with them. I think people will find it fascinating uh, in a lot of ways. Yes. All right. So let's start with the creation process first. In order to write this book, you first had to essentially write a half book's worth of material on why this is an important book to write or a, a book that Stanford can get behind. And then you're judged on that proposal that you wrote. If you get greenlighted after that proposal, and what they can do as well is come back to you and be like, I don't understand this section, bulk up this section, I need more from this section, which is what they did for me. So they needed a second draft of the proposal that I wrote for them, which was about half the length of the book. Then you get greenlit, then it's time to start writing. Now, in the writing process, there's a couple of checks along the way, yet I'll go to the final part of this, that you kind of think you're done. You've created this book, and you're, it represents your brand. You stand behind, and you're like, okay, I'm, I'm as close to perfection as I can be. Uh, it goes to reviews. It goes to boards, a board of, uh, of Stanford Press folk that they put together that's going to judge a book. And it also goes to an anonymous peer review that you can submit names or they think they find people that are close to what you do. And those people read the book. And then you get feedback from everybody across the board about what they liked and what they didn't like about the book. And then you have to make changes based on what they don't like, or you have to actually justify why you didn't make the changes that were recommended. And so some of the changes, uh, and you have to also explain the changes that you made based on their suggestion. So no matter what you're writing, you're writing additional, <laughs> additional um, communication, essentially, another book's worth of communication with them of like, okay, you suggested I do this, and I did this, and this is how I did this, or you suggested I did X and I chose not to do X. I did a X minus one or I just negated everything you just said because what you're missing is that by keeping this in there, it pays it off over here in chapter eight, subsection three, blah, 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 blah. So after you go through a couple of rounds of that, then you finally get to the point where they're like, yep, now you can call yourself a Stanford University Press author and we're ready to go to market with you. 
Wow, it sounds it sounds like you're writing a PhD dissertation. It's uh, that's a lot of steps. It's laborious. <laughs> some people self-publish. Some people go to New York uh, New York uh, publishers, whatever. Why did you decide to go to an academic press instead of other options? The way that I created my company, Business Improv, differentiating it from all those other great improv houses like the Second City, which, you know, I, as you know from the green room, I was on the main stage at the Second City as an understudy for a long time. So that's a, that's a home of mine, yet that's not what we do. And in Business Improv, showing professionals, uh, creating personal professional development programs using these tools and techniques for development, it's not platitudinous, it's not trust falls, it's not just fun. It's fun, It's yet it's meant to be applied. So I wanted to find a publisher that backs that up. And for me, Stanford, you know, there's really only a couple university presses that really rise to the surface. It's not a crack in any other university uh, presses out there, yet Stanford in anybody's world is one of them that rises to the top. So it right away gives different credibility and validity than any great publishing house out there or certainly self-publishing because at this point as well there's a lot of improv books out there there's there's you know i, I say that improvisers are like weeds we're everywhere yeah. and some of these weeds will even produce flowers and we'll call those books and there's a lot of weeds so there's a lot of flowers so there's a lot of books out there and i didn't want to just be an improv book that's an opinion piece i wanted to go through that mill of essentially judgment multiple times over because ultimately my focus is to help people help themselves. And so I wanted that university press behind it. Fantastic. And you also teach at several universities as well. So I can see where that would play in. So Bob, as we finish the interview, tell us uh, who's your perfect client and how can they get in touch with you? My perfect client is people who want to be better using the, the techniques of improvisation, whether it's this postponement of judgment, which is a huge part of improvisation, specifically, as you mentioned, Dan, through yes and, or agility, adaptability, this idea of you know what I'll call the word of 2020, pivot. Do the ideas of pivoting make sense to people? Do you actually know how to pivot? Do you know the difference between agility and adaptability? Do you know how to communicate these out? So people who need help with communication, collaboration, creativity, dealing with change, helping other people deal with change, the unknown, unpredictability, those that's my perfect audience. You know, the people who are, especially those who are in personal professional development, interested in doing either one of these for themselves, their family, the people around them, or for their organization. And if you're interested in getting a hold of me, please find me at businessimprov.com, or of course, you can find me at Bob Callahan on LinkedIn. Fantastic. Thank you for being with us today, Bob. And thanks, everyone, for listening to the podcast. Thank you for listening to the Write Your Book in a Flash podcast with Dan Janelle, the only podcast that shows you exactly how people just like you have built their businesses by writing a book. If you'd like to write your book but don't know where to start, you can find great information at writeyourbookinaflash.com. If you're ready to take your next step to write the book that can transform your business, I invite you to schedule a free, no-obligation consulting call with me by going to writeyourbookinaflash.com. We'll be back next week with another insightful interview to help you become a top business leader.